We were created by God for God, and apart from Him, we are homeless. The disciples of Jesus got to experience what it was like to look God in the face, to see Him provide, to hear truth from His mouth, to see miracles from His hands. And yet, last time we were together, we we saw them struggling apart from Him because He had sent them on the boat as night fell and was not with them as they faced the storm at sea. They survived that storm, rescued by Jesus, for He came walking to them on the water. He had been praying for them all along. His eye was on them. And now they're safely at Capernaum, Jesus' adopted hometown. The crowds that Jesus had fed with the boys' lunch know nothing about the miracle at sea, but the news of the feeding of the 5,000 has spread throughout the entire region around the Lake of Galilee, and Jesus is suddenly a celebrity. People want to find Him to get a taste of more of the amazing things that have been reported about Him. It's not every day you get a chance to experience the extraordinary. You know, we can look through Scripture and you see miracles, you see uh, things that happen, and sometimes because the pages are not far apart and because in your Bible the pages are very thin, uh, it seems like miracles are happening every day. And actually, uh, it could be a once in a lifetime, it could be once in a generation where God intervenes in a spectacular way. Normally, He's working in normal kinds of ways. So, this was spectacular. There's no getting around that. It was one of the problems His enemies had, and, and there were those who wanted to see more. Who knows what history-changing events could be ready to break upon the world? Remember, they had wanted to make Him king. So, they're thinking in terms of the Messiah, throwing off the yoke of Rome, uh, golden age, Um, prophesied by God. Well, we pick up the story in verse 22 of John 6, verse 22 of John 6. On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there and that Jesus had not entered the boat with His disciples, but that His disciples had gone away alone. So, those are the people that are on that northeast shore Uh, near where the 5,000 were were fed, 5,000 men plus women and children. Other boats from Tiberias, and that would be on the western shore uh, of the lake further south, came near the place where they had eaten the bread, so they're traveling across the lake um, after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor His disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. Capernaum is still in the north, but on uh, toward the west from the east where the feeding of the 5,000 happened. And when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, that means teacher, my teacher, when did you come here? And Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on Him, God the Father has set His seal. Then they said to Him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? He had referred to working for food that endures. Jesus answers them, this is the work of God, 
that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? And what work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it's written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, sir, give us this bread always. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. So we want to note the last words of verse 24. We read, so when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus, seeking Jesus. On the surface of things, seeking Jesus seems exactly the right response. We would pray for people to be seeking Jesus. God himself says in Jeremiah 29, 13, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. And that's in that context when you said, I have plans for you, for your welfare. I'm, I'm looking out for you. But seek me with all your heart. It's the kind of seeking that God is looking for, and that's where Jesus is going to focus attention. He's going he's to deal with the question, why are you seeking me? What's behind your quest? So in verse 26, he answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Signs are miracles with a message. The miracles Jesus did were meant to convey truth from God in visible, tangible ways. They, they were not for entertainment. They met human needs, yes, but in a way calculated to point people to the compassion of God in sending Jesus Christ to save them, not just from their hunger and their suffering, but from their sin and their death. In other words, what God was giving in Jesus was something more than just temporal relief, but, but something that would be a permanent relief, something that would be a, a restoration of the way the world was before sin marred the universe. So this passage probes one of the most important questions those who know anything about Jesus can ask, and that would include us. Why are you seeking Jesus? What are you hoping to receive from Him? There are many in Christ's day and many since who have sought for Jesus, but not to the saving of their souls. Your eternal destiny and mine rides not just on whether we are seeking Jesus, but why we are seeking Jesus. As we study this passage this morning, then, we, we want to ask ourselves three diagnostic questions. So these are going to probe our heart, the seeking with all our heart. Diagnostic questions about why we are seeking Jesus. We could expand that. Why are we even here this morning? Why do we bother gathering with God's people? Why do we worship? Why do we open our Bibles? Why do we pray? Why do we sing praise? Why do we do these kinds of things, these Jesus kinds of things? What's really driving that? What are we looking for? So, first question, are you hungering for temporal gain or for eternal life? 
perhaps we could say it this way, just for temporal gain. It's not that there's not value in what is of time and physical needs and that kind of thing, but are you hungering for more than that? And then second, what work does God want you to do? A lot of church-going people are doing their church-going because they're, they're, they're trying to win favor with God. So what work does God want you to do? And then third, what kind of life giver do you want? What kind of life giver do you want? So first, let's consider this question. Are you hungry for temporal gain or for eternal life? We're going to spend some time here because this kind of drives the whole passage. On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? The news that Jesus had fed thousands of people with one boy's lunch created a sensation. So in the morning, boats took off from the western shore of the lake headed to the northeast corner where the miracle occurred, near where it occurred, but Jesus was nowhere to be found. He had withdrawn. Why had he withdrawn? We were told by the text, because the crowd wanted to make him king. Why did they want to make him king? Well, because they'd never have to worry about food again. I mean, this is like, you know, it's the economy, stupid, right? Um, you, you want somebody who's going to make sure your life is happy and full. Temporal gain was their goal, and they saw Jesus as the ticket to that. They knew his disciples had headed to Capernaum, so they traveled to Capernaum on the northwest shore in hopes of learning where Jesus had gone. And there he was with his disciples. When did you get here, they asked. And behind that question is, how is this even possible? we saw just the disciples leave without you. Well, he bypassed their question. He didn't answer their question. Jesus often does that, by the way. He answers a question with the question or with a statement that probes something else. He turned attention to the real reason they were seeking him. In verse 26, he answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. They really didn't care about what the miracle signified, the sign import of the miracle. They didn't care about what it signified about Jesus and his mission. They were not concerned at this point about their need for cleansing from sin or restoration to life with God. They just wanted more food. Food is a necessary and a good thing, but food is not the supreme thing. It is a gift from God that he supplies to meet the needs he knows we have. But there's a greater need that has eternal dimensions. Jesus talked about this on more than one occasion. So in the Sermon on the Mountain, Matthew 6, he, he gives these words that are familiar to us. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious. Don't be worried about your life, what you eat or what you will drink, or about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value 
than they. What does he do? He's, he's turning their attention to the goodness and the provision of God rather than their being obsessed with the gifts that God gives and, and worried that they're not going to have enough. And then in 31 to 33, therefore do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles, that is those that don't know God, seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you have need of them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, the kind of change that needs to happen in your life, and all these things will be added to you. So Jesus says it this way in verse 27, do not work for food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which a son of man will give to you. For on him, God the Father has set his seal. Now we spend a lifetime eating food, but doing so cannot keep us alive forever. The food perishes. Both the food we leave sitting out too long and the food that we eat. Same with all the things that we do to maintain health and life. Everybody dies. And when we do, all our stuff is of no use anymore. We leave it all behind. You may have been rich or poor, but the end is the same. So we eat to stay alive, but that's not enough to live for. And that is not that's not the amount of life that we're actually looking to experience. Perhaps you're thinking, yes, but if I eat well and stay healthy, I will have a long, satisfying life. Possibly. Of course, all kinds of events can change that. But let's just say you do live a long, long, long time. Do this. Ask those who are in their 70s, 80s, and 90s, and if you're in your 70s, 80s, or 90s, I know that the question doesn't really make much sense, unless you're really ailing from bursitis or something like that. You know, you're, every day is very painful. You might answer, yeah, I'm really old, but, but I'm talking to those that are still in their teens and 20s and 30s because those sound like really old ages, and they're, as you grow older, they seem younger and younger and younger. Okay, but ask somebody in their 70s, 80s, or 90s, whether they feel their life has been long or short. Here's what I'm finding. Life seems to go faster and faster. Days and weeks and months and years seem to fly by like pages of a book in the wind. It seems like only yesterday that I was a teenager, and I think I'm still a teenager at heart in a lot of ways. From the moment you and I become self-conscious, all we've known is being alive. It's hard to even get our heads around that one day they'll be saying goodbye to us at our own funeral. We know it happens to everybody else. We know that it will happen to us. We know that theoretically, but it's hard to even grasp that. But then what? Because that, that day is coming just as surely as this day came. Then what? Then what? Except for Enoch and Elijah, every human being who ever walked the planet has died it's only a matter of time, and the time is short. The proverbial dash between the dates that you see on a tombstone. So don't spend your life working for only what will perish after such a short time. As a human being, 
created in God's image, you were made for more. So, you know, it can be very depressing. I know what I've just been talking about is really, really depressing. Like, we don't even like to think about it, so we try not to, we try to do as little as possible. But, but the point is not to think about that, but to think about the fact that you were made for more. That God put eternity in your heart. That, that God has a plan for you that goes way beyond 80, 90, or even if you lived in the pre-flood era into the 900s. God has a plan for you much bigger than that. You're a human being creating God's image. I have gobs of squirrels in my yard, and squirrels gather acorns. They're always out gathering acorns and digging in the yard so that they have enough to eat. That's how they spend their days. I get, you know, I haven't really hung out with a squirrel all day, so I'm sure they do other things. But, but, but human beings were made for more than just living like a squirrel. So, you know, but, but some human beings act like, you know, they're proud of how many acorns they've gathered, and they spend all their life just gathering acorns so they can eat. That's all? Really? Is that all? The world is full of people using Jesus simply for temporal gain. Missionaries sometimes refer to rice Christians. That is, as long as you feed them, they will join themselves to believers. But take the food away, and they'll look elsewhere. Some start attending church and doing other religious things because it makes for good business contacts or garners community respect. Now, that's changing in our days, so more people don't think spending time in public worship is really necessarily an advantage to them. A person can go into Christian ministry merely to make a living or to, to finally be the person in charge. It may have nothing to do with walking with God or serving Him and His people, or they might refuse to do what God is calling them to do because they're afraid they won't live well enough and make enough money. Or people will be regular in the religious practices until some tragedy strikes or they lose a job or they find a hobby they like doing more. As long as they're healthy and wealthy and having fun, they will do the church thing, but touch their health or their money or their entertainment, and they think they've been cheated, and they're out of here. A relationship with the living God doesn't really matter. You and I need food, according to Jesus, that endures to eternal life. We need something that like food gives us sustenance, food allows us to physically live longer, it, it, it nourishes our soul. We need something that will nourish us toward eternal life, not just physical life. And the question is, how do we really get that? Well, Jesus says, which the Son of Man will give you. We could no more acquire eternal life than 5,000 people could feed themselves with one boy's lunch. Jesus has to give this kind of life to you. He's the only one who can. He is the Son of Man whom Daniel saw in his nighttime visions of the end of the age, the one who would come with the Ancient of Days. The Ancient of Days appointed him to judge all the earth and to establish an everlasting kingdom of his saints his holy ones, the ones that belong to God, they'll reign with him forever. On him, God the Father has set his seal. A seal is a mark of authenticity and authority 
Only the Son has been approved and appointed by God the Father to give eternal life, to give you this fullness of life that goes beyond just physical needs. You can acquire it no other way and from no other person. And this is what the crowd needed to learn. This is what Jesus was pushing them to see, that that what he was offering them was far more valuable than just lunch. Lunch is valuable, yes. It was needed, and he had compassion on them. But the God of compassion knows that your needs are far greater than just that. And he offers you far more in Jesus. So what what motivates, you know, we're far removed from the situation then, but, but our motivations are much the same because we're human beings, we're physical, uh, not just spiritual. So what motivates your connection to a church? I mean, chances are you're not part of this church just because you know you'll get fed. We, we tend to be, a, uh, we, we live in a fairly affluent time. There's probably very few of us, if any, that have gone hungry for any length of time. So that's probably not what's driving you. But, but, but there could be other things that are really just temporal things that drive you. And, and beyond that, what are you expecting to get from seeking Jesus? Now, wh- why did you come to Jesus? What, what, why, why are you connected to him? What, what are you trying to gain? What are you hungering for? And of the things that matter to you, what is temporal and what is eternal? Or is everything just weighted to the one side? So that leads us to this next question, and they, they caught on some of Christ's words, and that is, what work does God want you to do? Verse 28, then they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. Now, at first it seems like, what are they talking about? Like, where do they get that from? Well, they're they're still thinking in terms of what they can do to attain what they want. Jesus had been talking about making eternal life a greater priority than temporal things. He was talking about why you work, not what kind of work you have to do to get this eternal life. But they're thinking in terms of the prevailing form of religion of their day, and that is, you know, impressing God. Like, what? okay, so how do I get there? Tem- you know, give me the five steps. Give me the formula, and, and yeah, we'll do it. The crowd seizes on the words, work for food that endures to eternal life. They miss that the Son of Man will give to you. All religion powerless to give us eternal life calls us to work our way to favor with God. It's all about what you must do for God rather than about what God has done for you, calling you to trust Him. The law of God recorded in the Scriptures is perfect and good, but its purpose is to reveal to us how high God's standards of righteousness and holiness actually are, and that no matter how hard we try, we fall short of a standard. Even believers fall short of a standard in this life. The law of God reveals how sinful we are. In fact, God's law awakens and strengthens in our sin nature our innate desire to disobey God. All you have to do to make me want to do something wrong is tell me I can't do it. 
right? And maybe we're not all wired that way, but I think maybe all of us are. Just when we see it in, in, you know, kids, when they haven't even learned to walk yet and they're just crawling, we say, don't touch that outlet. I mean, that's like saying, man, that, that sounds like that, that's forbidden, so it must be really cool. We are children of disobedience, and we are therefore children of wrath. Our very nature is to disobey. Our very nature deserves eternal wrath. We can't work ourselves out of this reality. We need rescue from outside of ourselves. We need a Savior. We need the judge of all the earth, the Son of Man appointed by God the Father to give us this eternal life. The question is whether you actually believe he can do so and will do so if you want it, if you will ask for it. What must you do? You must trust him this way. This is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. I mean, Paul talked about this, talked about those who who were trying to use religion and the law of God in a way that it was never intended to be used. He says, I bear witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God, which is perfect, and seeking to establish their own, which is not, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end. He's the the goal, the purpose of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. The the righteousness we need is a perfect righteousness. It has to be given to us by Christ. You must believe into Jesus. You must lean into Him with the weight of your trust. You do so because you also believe that God has sent Him to give you this eternal life that you desire. You say, okay, I want this fullness of life. I want this eternal life. I want to, I want to be forgiven of my sin. I, I, I want to be part of that new heaven and new earth. How do I get there? It has to be given to me, and the only person who can give it to me is Jesus. I have to trust him for it, or it's not available. I'm not going to find it on the black market. I'm not going to find it anywhere else. If you care only about temporal gain and satisfaction, you won't bother to look further. If you think you can earn your way, you'll never make it. And so the world is full of people who, they don't care about eternal life, they just want the here and now. He who dies with the most toys wins. There's a whole group of people there. There's another group of people that are saying, yeah, I do care about eternal life. How can I get there? What do I need to do? God calls you to trust his son Jesus, because neither of those groups are going to experience eternal life. You have to receive it as a gift from him. Nothing else will do. If you choose a different way, you will perish. John 14, 6, Jesus said to his disciples, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Peter would preach in Acts 4, there is salvation and no one else, there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. So I don't know what category you might be falling into. I know we have some that you really don't care about eternal things. You think it's all a fairy tale. Well, if you're right, you'll probably be okay. But what if you're wrong? 
and there's a lot of testimony to your being wrong. What will you do then? And then there are others who say, you know, I'm, I'm in this religion thing, and, you know, God kind of owes me. I've, I mean, I've given thousands of dollars in the offering plate. I, I've attended church, a, you know, thousands of times. I, I, could, I could preach you sermons myself because I heard so many. Well, what works that you do make you feel God owes you? You know, even a believer can get into this mindset Like, God, you know, I did this for you, and I did this for you, and I did this for you, and then you did this to me. And then what work that Christ has done have you received by faith in him as your Savior and Lord? If you want this eternal life, you're going to have to lean on him. He's the only one that can get you there. It's going to be nothing that you do. Finally, what kind of life giver do you want? Verse 30, so they said to him, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it's written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. What sign do you do? Really? Like, show us a sign. Yesterday you fed 15,000 people. Show us a sign today. I mean, how many signs do you need? Faith, trust, belief in Jesus is actually not such an easy thing. It's a heart thing. Unbelief always wants more than the evidence God has already given. It always has an excuse about why it holds back from making a commitment. But the real problem is unbelief's bondage to sin and self-indulgence. People want that more than they want divine deliverance. They know that if they were to trust God and yield to God, then they wouldn't be in charge anymore, as if they actually are. But the illusion would be broken. Matthew 12, 38 and 39, some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. He's already done all kinds of signs, all kinds of miracles. But he answered them, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. Jonah, who who miraculously survived three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, called on Nineveh to repent. He must have looked like a walking pickle. I mean, maybe that's why they listened to him, because he looked so weird and smelled so bad. Though pagans, they did repent. Like Jonah, Jesus would be three days and nights in the belly of the earth and would rise again from the dead. His apostles would preach everywhere that we must repent and believe the gospel. Another miracle was not what was needed here. Faith in what God had already revealed was. The real problem is that the crowd wanted something more like God's provision of manna, seven days a week for 40 years. They're still driven by their appetite for the temporal and the time-bound. They're not worried a bit about eternity. They're not, not thinking about why people die at all and how to fix that. 
that death entered the world because of man's sin and that only purging the sin would forever release us from the curse of death. They're not thinking about that. Verse 32 and 33, Jesus then said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it's not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Jesus corrects their thinking on a number of levels. First, it was God, not Moses, who gave them manna in the wilderness. Humans are ever making idols of their leaders as well as making idols of God's gifts to them. Both fixations rob God of the glory you deserve. Second, the manna was sufficient for sustaining life only for a time. All who ate it eventually died. It was for their physical sustenance only. It could not give life that lasts forever. Third, their question implies that they think Moses is greater than Christ and that manna is more valuable than whatever Christ is offering. But Christ Jesus is the true bread from heaven. The the life he offers lasts forever. It is life divine given to human beings through God's gift of his son who would offer up his body and pour out his blood to make atonement for all who would believe in him. Only through him is the cause of death nullified. And only through him comes this life that lasts forever. We eat so we can live but we need a life that's more than just physical life. So Jesus goes on to say in verses 34 to 35, they said to him, sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. The crowd is still clearly thinking in physical and temporal terms, but their request reminds us of words we've heard before. Words we heard from the woman at the well not long before she actually put faith in Jesus as the promised Messiah. I mean, Jesus is condescending to to teach these people. He condescended to talk to this woman at the well, and some will believe. Verse 13 of John 4, Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. He uses that language later to talk about the Spirit of God who indwells believers and regenerates them. The the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. So she was still at that point thinking physical, but she wants what Christ is offering. She just doesn't quite understand it yet. God uses our physical hunger and thirst to lead us to our sense of need, our need for not just physical life, but also spiritual life. He uses the megaphone of pain to awaken us from our inattention, to deliver us from our self-reliance. How many have been humbled by their physical calamities and their physical needs opening their hearts to realizing they're not self-sufficient and that they really do need God and they need the salvation that He offers. The spread of life is not a thing to be acquired. It is a person to be trusted. The first of many I am statements in John, if we don't count the it is I in the stormy sea. The whole point of 
Eating and drinking is to sustain life. But we want to do more than just survive. We, we want to have life to the full. If it's life you desire, not just a full belly, then you must come to Jesus and trust fully in Him. You, you, to come to Him is to trust Him, to, to bow to Him, to look to Him, to provide the eternal life that He alone can give you. If you come to Him and trust Him, your hunger and your thirst for life is satisfied forever. There'll be no time date stamp on it. You can go out a billion years from now and you'll still have it. There'll never be a day where you said, ah, oh, this was a shell game. This didn't last. If you have him, you have everything you need. This is basically what the Apostle John will say in 1 John. This is the testimony. This is the eyewitness testimony that God gave us eternal life. And this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. So what kind of life matters most to you? And what about your life shows that you are trusting Jesus for eternal life rather than just being obsessed with temporal life? As was quoted in the prayer this morning from Psalm 73, my heart and my flesh may fail, but God is my strength and my portion forever. You will receive me into glory. No relationship works well if you're just using the other person. What you need is trust and closeness and the blessing of one person marking another, and that's what you need from God. Are you hungering for temporal gain or for eternal life? What work does God want you to do? What kind of life giver do you want? I mean, think about the life God offers, the love, the joy, the peace, the, the new birth being transformed from the inside out so that, that I'm a different person that fits in the new heaven and the new earth where righteousness dwells, where sin and suffering and death are gone forever. That's the life that Christ offers. Are you seeking that from him? Let's pray. God, I pray that you would give us a hunger and a thirst for what Christ gives to us and what Christ alone can give to us. Lord, keep us from being distracted. Keep us from being fooled by the knockoffs, by the other voices, by the other philosophies, by the time-bound vision of so many or the, the works righteousness of others. Lord, help us, help us to seek Jesus for this gift that he gives. And Lord, help us pass it on to others.